0: We can, we can look at the book of Luke together. I'll just kind of take you on a walk through the chapters, uh, that we have for this week, Luke chapters four to six, and point up out a couple of things that I feel are relevant. The first one is in Luke chapter four. It says the master, after having this glorious experience, uh, having the father audibly affirm him and tell, speak of his love for him, he, uh, drives him out into the desert and he's, not allowed to eat for 40 days, and he's buffeted by the evil one. And just, you know, you don't—you almost think something doesn't line up here. I mean, the Father just told me he loves me. I just had a glorious experience. What's with all this hardship right now? Why is he taking, why is he putting me through this? Maybe that's one of the ways of the Almighty. And I thought it was interesting just what a clear observation we get of the evil one. Usually he's like a snake in the grass. He's slithering around. He tries to stay out of sight. Uh, sometimes maybe he's like a mouse with a megaphone. He has a big voice and he can try and intimidate you, but he has no power in your life except for the degree that you give it to him. And, but here he's coming right out in the open. And I wanted to point out a couple things about the strategy of the enemy. Of course, uh, in English he's often called Satan, and that is directly from a Hebrew word. Satan, hasatan, which means the opponent, the adversary. And uh, in this chapter, he's called the devil. And I noticed there's a similarity here between his three major frontal attacks and He He prefaces his temptations by saying, you know, Yeshua, if you're really God's son, why don't you do this? Can you do that? And... What we can learn from that is, the enemy will attack us in our relationship with our Father. If we're not secure in our Father's love for us, if we're not deeply grounded in the fact that we're right with Messiah, right through Messiah with the Father, then we're going to be vulnerable to the enemy's attacks, because he's going to say that to you too. Well, you know, if the Father really loved you, why would this be happening? If you're really his child and you have the covenant with him, then why is that happening? Or why don't you go out and do this? And that seems to be the core of his attacks. And actually, I thought it was interesting this came up because I had a conversation with someone a couple weeks ago. There are times, and I shared with this person, that there are times when I will be feeling something like not good. Maybe I'll just be feeling like that the the Holy One is absent in my life or he's not engaged with me or he doesn't love me or whatever. I'm sure we all have times when we feel that and the byproduct of those feelings can be worry or frustration or, or rage or any one of so many feelings. I I think it probably depends on the individual. But I was sharing with this person that when I stop, when I'm feeling that and I tell myself, Izzy, you have a father. And then I tell myself about my father in heaven. He is, he is engaged in your life. He is so wise. He is guiding you. I find that all of those black feelings dissipate immediately. There's just something about saying, I have a father that does it for me. And I encourage you to try that. Next time you're under spiritual attack, next time your spouse or someone in your family or a friend is under spiritual attack, start speaking to that person and telling them about their father. And see what that does. It's also interesting that the enemy is tempts Yeshua to take an approach that's, in total contradistinction to his general approach. His general approach, and we see this especially in the book of Yochanan John, is he says, you know what, I don't do anything except what I see my father doing. I only say the words that I hear from him. And the enemy here is trying to entice the master to do the exact opposite. Why don't you act independently? Why don't you just go ahead and do this? And of course, that's, that would be disaster. Because the moment that we step out of dependence on Abba, and and uh, that, that humble reliance on his leading, that's the moment we begin to go off course. That's the moment that we begin to go downhill and crash. It's the moment we get independent, which is dangerous because everything in our so- society is telling us, be independent, be your own person. All you need is you. And that's, that's one of the major messages of psychology today. So it's interesting that these ancient whispers of the enemy are still alive and well, and they still hit us on a regular basis, and we can help each other out with that. I also love to see the Master's response. I mean, here is like, Yeshua's—he has such deep and total integrity. hes He has such spiritual power pulsing within His Spirit. I mean, if anybody could just go like, boom, and knock the enemy backwards, or or rage against him and rub his face, his evil face in the mud. You'd think he would be Yeshua. But isn't it interesting that Yeshua doesn't say a word on his own. Instead, he only quotes his father. He goes back to the authority of the Torah to combat the enemy. And for that reason, I think, man, we as the body of Messiah today, we need to wake up and return to the Torah. Uh, Too often it's... uh, it's thrown away as irrelevant or from a past dispensation or whatever. And all of a sudden it's, we don't talk about the Torah anymore. We don't we don't encourage our children to memorize the Torah and quote it at op- every opportunity. But according to Yeshua, if we're really disciples of Him, then this is the secret to spiritual warfare. This is the secret to overcoming the enemy. Knowing the Torah inside and out and quoting it. And hopefully living it out too. Could it be that that could be a ma- that that massive uh chink in the armor today in the body of Messiah? I think it could be I think maybe that's why the enemy freaks out when be- people begin returning to their Jewish roots of the faith into uh into the Torah because that's a major stronghold and when the father gets that one out of the body of Messiah, we are going to become so much more powerful and we see that happening already um, I could share lots of Incredible stories from Messianic Jewish history in the last three or four decades that illustrate that. Well, I think we will have to keep that for another time though. Uh, last, last Shabbat, we talked about the book of Luke and how the first couple of chapters of the book of Luke are not originally a Christmas narrative. That's what they're usually associated with. You begin reading those first couple of chapters, like, uh, this phrase here, Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, the word of God came to John, etc. And I mean, you're boom, you're right back there Christmas time, if that's from your background. But we learn that that's not it. The book of Luke is a thoroughly Jewish document. The book of Luke is pulsing with the heartbeat of the people of Israel. And the book of Luke also takes place in the context of ancient Jewish liturgy, which continues to be the Jewish liturgy of today. Um, I just want to carry on that theme in uh, in the Shabbat Luke chapter 4 verse 16 I love this verse it's just one of those little personal glimpses into what our master is all about it says and he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up and as was his custom he entered the synagogue on Shabbat and stood up to read so let me ask you what is the way of Yeshua what was he in the habit of doing he went to synagogue every Saturday morning He stood up to read the Torah. Now, let me ask you: Did he do that because he had to? Did he walk to synagogue every Shabbat like, "Oh man, I can't wait till this law stuff is done away with"? Oh, I just can't wait until nobody has to do all this stuff anymore. No more going to synagogue. Don't have to read the Torah. And then I'm just going to get Paul on the scene, and we're going to write his epistles, and we're going to spend most of most of most of our time in Paul's epistles. I mean, is that what Yeshua thought when he'd go to synagogue on Shabbat? No, of course it wasn't. Yeshua loved going to synagogue. He loved reading his father's teaching. He did it because he wanted to. And that's why that's why I come to synagogue every Shabbat morning also. It's because I love it. And uh, that's, uh hopefully just gives us a more vivid look at Yeshua. And maybe blows the popular misconception about him out of the water too. It's also why we stand up to read from the Torah on Shabbat. Because our master did. <laughs> Moving on also, in uh, Luke 4.44, last verse of the chapter, it says, So he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. So where did Yeshua do his preaching? In the synagogue. Sometimes, if we come from an evangelical background, it's, it's almost hard to imagine Yeshua in a synagogue. We think of like blonde-haired, blue-eyed Malibu Jesus in the synagogue. And everybody else, of course, looks significantly more Jewish. And maybe he's the only one without a to lead on and whatever else. But Yeshua, he wasn't just there as a foreigner. He wasn't just there because he had to be there. He was preaching in the synagogues because he was Jewish. And because that was his his like uh, native environment. That was the fabric in which he lived his entire life. I love that about Yeshua. He was there because he loved his Jewish people. Because he loved preaching in the synagogue. I really believe that Yeshua never did anything except for what he loved to do. Even with the epic atonement he accomplished. I mean, he did not want to go through that. And he expressed that to Abba. But his ultimate decision was he loved the Father. And he loved the Father's will. So he went through with it. So, I just, for me anyway, when I get that vision of the Master, it sets me free. I don't do stuff because I have to anymore. If I'm only doing something because I have to, I don't do it. It's missing the point, it's kind of dangerous. <laughs> yeah. There's one more thing and, uh, regarding the Jewish context in this uh, chapter. In Luke 4.40, this is a verse that really puzzled me when I was in Bible quizzing. I grew up in an Alliance church and they had Bible quizzing and I was one of those all-star Bible quizzers that would memorize total material. So I'd memorize the whole book of Matthew and I got to go to internationals for a couple of years and things like that. But I had this nagging question. I remember asking my quizzing coach about it. I would be I, I would be like, why why does it say that after the sunset they would they brought the people to Jesus to heal them? What was with waiting till sunset? And we all kind of hummed and hawed and we kind of puzzled over it, and none of us could figure it out. We we we, we I remember leaving that day with my nagging question unresolved. <laughs> and it wasn't until I reconnected with my Jewish heritage and I recovered that, starting about nine years ago, that I realized, oh Jesus was a Jew. All of those other people were too. They don't start the day in the middle of the night like the Romans do. The day starts at sunset. Oh, and that was a Sabbath. So they were waiting till Sabbath was over, Saturday evening, and then they were bringing everybody to Him and they were mobbing the place so that they could get healed. <laughs> um, that's a funny little excerpt from my past, how my niggling little question was answered. Maybe there are bigger questions too that studying the Bible in its original context answers. Could be. Um, here's an interesting, something interesting that I only discovered this last year. Luke 4.25, Yeshua gives a time frame for how long the drought in the time of Elijah lasted for. It doesn't actually say how long it was in the Tanakh narrative. But it does here. Uh, Luke 4.40, he says, oh, sorry, that's not it. Yeah, Luke 4.25. He says it was a, um, the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months. When a great famine came over all the land. So there was a great tribulation that hit the land of Israel where they had no rain for three years and six months. A lot of people died of um, starvation at that time. And... Of course, the end, at the culmination of it, Elijah had his big showdown with the prophets of Baal and Asherah. And uh, they lost very badly. They lost more than just the contest. They lost their lives. And then, of course, the rain came. Uh, but Yeshua's uh, younger brother, Yaakov, James, he also references the same idea in the last chapter of his letter. Uh, James 5.17, he mentions that uh, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed earnestly that it wouldn't rain. And guess what? It didn't rain for three and a half years. So it's just interesting that this is a this is what you call like an extra biblical reference. This is from Jewish tradition, but it's not actually listed in the Tanakh. Uh here's something else interesting. Where else does the concept of a three and a half year period of tribulation uh show up? (laughs) Revelation. So there's a there's a peg for you connecting the book of Revelation. Okay, Luke four thirty-two. It simply says that these uh, the people that heard Yeshua, they were floored by his Torah. They were amazed at this guy's teaching. Why? Because he actually taught with authority. Now, your regular uh, like Torah teacher then, he wouldn't speak on his own authority. He was ordained by a rabbi who had been ordained by a rabbi who had been ordained by a rabbi who could supposedly claim his rabbinic lineage all the way back to Moses. And that continues to be a very strong theme in Judaism. If you read Pirkei Avot, uh, like Ethics of the Fathers, in the Jewish prayer book, the very first verse says that Moses passed the oral Torah onto Joshua, who passed it on to so-and-so, who passed it on, and now we have it. So you can see this is a very strong thing. But Yeshua came from another lineage. He didn't come as someone who was ordained by Moses. He came as someone who ordained Moses. He came as someone who had ultimate authority to interpret the Torah and to give halakha. And this is a very important message because a lot of people today in the Messianic Jewish community don't think that way. They think that you need to be able to trace your lineage rabbinically all the way back to Moses to be able to have that authority, which is why and the, 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 the result can be dangerous. You can end up giving uh, the rabbinic body undue authority. Sometimes people look to the Sanhedrin to ultimately make their halachic decisions for them even though the Sanhedrin isn't fully authorized they call themselves nascent instead of looking to Yeshua and to his halacha to his authority in the body of Messiah so that's why that's important but I I have a little example for you of uh, the opposite of speaking with authority maybe we can play that little clip right away here and while Colin is queuing that up I'll mention something oh really? is the volume okay? okay yeah you can you can flip it on so you can tell me if this person is speaking with authority or not uh, i don't think we've ever done this before this is an excellent segment and you both uh, thank you let me start. Quick it forward uh, one more. Done... Eh, you know what? Nothing. Don't worry. We'll just hold the computer up here and people can see it. We're a pretty small group. Here, just uh, bring the laptop. Oh, just uh, pause it. I don't it. think we've ever done this be- have we never done this before. Okay. That's good enough. <laughs> yeah, just it's hold on. Can you pull the pull the speaker over just a little bit here? Sure. Okay, can you guys all see here? Nice little picture. Oh, you better come a little closer then. What's your name again? Ma- Megan? Yeah, you can come a little closer, Megan. Okay, there. How's this? I don't think we've done this before, but this will work. Yeah. This is an excellent segment, and you folks, uh, thank you. Lucky like stars, you're here tonight. It's time for the Barack Obama uh count. Let me know. Barack Obama uh count. Uh-huh. Are you ready? Uh-huh. Here we go. You see okay? Uh, override uh, a guilt by association. Some of these issues about with full documentation that there's nothing I think there's no doubt that has in the past. Uh that, that, of course, isn't directly in contradistinction to what we're talking about with Yeshua speaking with authority, but I just love that clip, and I had to fit it in there somewhere. <laughs> so. But, you know, what, the way Yeshua talked is the way that we're called to talk also. I mean, we Paul said very clearly that the gift of prophecy... And of course, when we talk about prophecy, we're not talking about glitz and glamour and pushing people over and all of this stuff that somehow, sometimes like we get this image in our minds of charismatic activity gone wild. Um, prophecy, biblically, is very simple. It's not all this ooh, ah, fortune telling either. It's hearing from God, hearing His Word and speaking it. It's just speaking His Word under the power and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And I, I guarantee you, every one of you in this room have done that at some point in your life. And that's why Paul said, you know, out of all the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the one that you should really want, the one you should be really going after is the gift of prophecy. Because when you operate in that, it builds other people up. And it comforts them. And it challenges them and encourages them. And uh, it's a great thing for the congregation. And Paul went on to say, I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but I wish even more that you'd all prophesy. He went on in that same chapter to also say, you can all prophesy. And we know from the book of Revelation that the spirit of prophecy is what? The testimony of Yeshua. So, you know, when we talk about something like prophecy, we're talking about hearing from the Almighty and being enabled to speak His word clearly and boldly. I think actually my grandfather was a great example of that. He grew up in an, uh, a farm a pioneer farming home west of Saskatoon in the Asquith area. Uh, didn't grow up in a religious uh, home at all, but when he was in the uh, military in World War II, he met the creator of the universe, and he was totally changed. And he experienced a call from the Messiah to begin teaching the word and to tell people about the creator of the universe whom he'd met and to bring them to him. And my grandfather, he totally changed. My grandma said before that, he was really shy. He was he was an extremely quiet guy. He, he It was really hard for him to even work up the courage to propose to my grandmother. But after he was transformed and after he'd met the Messiah, like he would get up and he would begin explaining the word and he would become a different person. Uh, he would be going down to the electric shop to get a part or he'd be talking with whoever and he couldn't stop himself from talking to people about matters of truth and about where they were going to spend their forever and about the salvation that they could have. Um, he was pretty famous for that in, in the North Battlefield area. My uncle said when he was a little boy, he was uncomfortable going out with my grandpa because he knew that wherever grandpa went, he would, he would end up talking to people about God. It was never just business as usual. And, and that's what happens when the Holy Spirit is like operative in our lives and when the fire is ignited. And uh, we often will end up speaking with a degree of authority that will make some people uncomfortable. Uh, we're Canadians. We are politically correct. We like to couch our opinions in lots of phrases like, well, I think this, or well, it's my opinion that... And uh, we often people in our culture will get offended if you just out and say something as it is. But Yeshua did that. Maybe he offended people in his time too. I don't know. Uh, Luke 5.10, Yeshua gives a personal little uh, insight to a couple of the guys he's calling. He says, don't fear, from now on you'll be catching men. And of course these guys are fishermen. So Yeshua, he, he spoke to them about their previous career and he, he applied that to their future. And I think there's a lesson in that. Often, if we come from like a Greek way of thinking, we have our lives divided up into little compartments. We have the spiritual part of our life for most people, it's like, okay, we go to church, or we go to prayer meeting, or whatever, and that's where I'm that's where i spiritual, and that's where I express my spirituality. And then we have the secular part of our lives. And that's when we get up and we read the paper, and we drink our coffee, or when we go to work, or whatever. But uh, that is not the scriptural approach to spirituality. Um, the, the Jewish worldview and understanding of spirituality is that everything is spiritual. Every day is spiritual. Um, it's not like some activities are more spiritual than others. And that certainly applies to work during the week and the careers. Working six days is just as much loving God as resting on Shabbat. We were talking about that today, I? Yeah. And uh, I, I think it's meaningful that these guys, they, their, their careers as fishermen, it prepared them for what they were going to be doing. They were there for a reason. And it's, so for each one of us, the work that we've done or the work that we're doing, it's part of your story. It's part of your spiritual training. The Father has you doing what you're doing, or He had you doing what you're doing to prepare you for what you, where you are right now and for what He's calling you to. So every strand of our lives in the greater fabric of our lives, it has meaning and it has purpose. Uh, a friend of mine once shared with me that, you know, with any tapestry, if you look at the front, there's this, there's this gorgeous picture or some marvelous design, and everything is perfect. It's all coherent. But if you look at the back of the tapestry, how many of you have done that? It's a big mess. It's just like a big tangled mess of colors and threads. And, you know, if you're looking at your life from, like, the ins, from this side of your eyeballs, you know, from the inside, then it's gonna look like the back of the tapestry. Sometimes. And that's okay. What you need to know is, as long as you're loving, loving the Father and doing His Word, He's seeing the big picture and He's weaving your life into something gorgeous to glorify Him. Uh another, another thing from this Parsa, uh, Luke, that really really touched my heart is Luke 5.16. It's another personal glimpse at the master's one of the Master's habits, something he would do on a regular basis. It says, Yeshua himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. He would often just sneak off to the countryside, maybe he'd go for, for a walk through the field or through an orchard or something, and he would just spend time with his father. I don't know. How many of you have been out in the countryside sometime or maybe been camping or hiking and you just felt really close to him? He was spiritually rejuvenative. Well, I have times like that. Like, sometimes I pine for just going away and just hiking for a week or, you know, things like that. And it's just, it's so cool that, that it's possible to build a theology of spending time in the wilderness based on the master's own life. That there's a place for that in the life of the believer. There's something about just being out in creation that uh, Yeshua himself appreciated. I don't know. I don't really think that Yeshua was out there in the field like praying the whole time like with his to lead on and davening. I kind of wonder if maybe sometimes he was just walking around and looking at trees and smelling a flower. Maybe there's maybe we have a small definition of prayer. Maybe Maybe we could expand our definition of prayer. Maybe things like that also constitute prayer on a certain level, or they facilitate it. Um, I have two books for show and tell today. Uh, in this Luke passage, it also talks about wineskins. The traditional interpretation has being well, the old wineskin is Judaism, the new wineskin is Christianity. Uh, unfortunately, that's an anachronistic understanding, and it just doesn't fit. And Daniel Lancaster does a great job explaining that in his book, King of the Jews, Resurrecting the Jewish Jesus. I like this book. I just wanted to point that out. He talks about, he gives a whole chapter to that discussion. And then also there's a, a large section of this reading is about Shabbat observance. And Yeshua's uh, internal dialogue with others in Judaism about the right way to do Shabbat. And he wasn't saying, guys, you know, I'm here and I've come to do away with all this stuff. He was saying, here's the right way to do it. And uh, I'm reading another book right now. From Sabbath to Sunday. The Historical Investigation of the Rise of Sunday Observance in Early Christianity by Samuel, is a really dangerous last name. It has four C's in it, um, Bakioki or something like that. But this is an excellent book also. Uh, it talks a lot about the history of how early believers went from being Shabbat observant, like our Master himself, to uh, meeting on Sunday morning and calling that the Lord's Day. It has a very solid historical case to be made, saying that the, uh, the the concept of meeting on Sunday and calling it the Lord's Day doesn't have biblical authority. This is something that's derived from uh, church tradition. That's a useful book. Okay, let's look at the Parsha for a couple of minutes here too. Leviticus, Vikrad chapter 6 and on. Um, the name of this Parsha is Chav. It's the word where uh, Yahweh told Moshe... Command the sons of Aaron to thus and so. And here's a here's a question for you. What does your neck have in common with God's commandments? <laughs> well, you have to be a Hebrew speaker to get this one. They're both connectors. The word sov is the root of mitzvot, which of course is commandments or mitzvah, singular, and it's also the word for your neck. So what that tells us is, when we do the mitzvot, it's like a connection point in the physical dimensions of space and time, with the higher dimensions where the Creator lives. Um, you know, when you pray, "Let your kingdom of heaven be expressed on the earth." Doing the mitzvot is a practical expression of that. Maybe that's another reason why the enemy freaks out when people start actually doing the Bible, because that's where that's where believers begin to get really dangerous. That's where the kingdom of heaven begins to be unleashed on the earth. That's the, that's the traditional Jewish understanding based on the Hebrew word. Yeah, stiff-necked. You just not, don't want to connect or you're just not connecting the dots maybe. Eh? Yeah, so that's a, that's, a, that's a key Hebrew insight into the function of commandments in the life of a believer. They're connecting points. Just like the neck connects, connects the head and the body. So where Paul said to believers, um, you know, cleave to the head, you're the body cleaved to the head, Yeshua. An element of that is indeed Torah observance. Um, something I really loved in this parsha that popped up over and over again is uh, the first time it pops up is in Luke 6, verse 9. And uh, it says, Command Aaron and his son saying, This is the law for the olah, the burnt offering. The Hebrew there says, This is the Torah for the olah.' So it's more than just a law. It's practical instruction and you can see indeed the very next several uh verses are all about practical instructions for how to do the offerings procedure uh physical activity guidance in that regard and that gives us a great insight into the torah um later on in this in this parsha the uh, the mincha the grain offering the chatat the sin offering the asham the guilt offering and the zevach shlamim the peace offerings they're all listed and each one of these sections begins with that preface this is the Torah of this offering and then it gives practical instructions so it gives us a great understanding of the function of Torah in our lives practical instruction it's a, it's a how to manual <laughs> it's a guidebook, just like each of these little subsections uh, there's actually a connection in the book of Luke with this uh, Yeshua heals the leper and then what does he tell him to do He says, go and make the offering that Moshe commanded you in the temple. Why? As a testimony to them. So this is an example of how you have the physical commandment, you have the basic action, and then you have the underlying Torah. You have the deeper insights and the, the real reasons why the commandment was given. And when you employ this approach to the Torah, it really comes alive. Every commandment is no longer just a little something to do but it has a deeper Torah a deeper teaching attached you can ask yourself why did he give this commandment what's the principle behind this commandment what's the expression of godliness that I can see in this how do I how do I perceive Messiah through this commandment when I imagine him carrying it out that's the concept of the Torah behind each of the mitzvot and we see that like I said in the offering for the leper there was something deeper there it was a testimony of Messiah Um, Paul, I believe, had this whole concept in mind when he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 46, first the natural, then the spiritual. He gave a law, And with the popular way of studying the Bible today, we like to skip the first half and just get straight to the second half because we think like Greeks. Greeks just like to understand things in their minds. That's the classic Jewish approach. But Jewish people don't want to just understand it. They want to do the stuff. When I look at your life and how you're treating the people in your life, how you're conducting your affairs, etc. And uh, that's much more solid and concrete. And because I, I'm someone who thinks more quantifiably, it's also something that appeals to me also about Torah spirituality. But uh, we really need to get in touch with that. You know, it's, it's tempting to just read the Bible and try and get the understanding of the feasts but never do them. But that's putting the cart before the horse. The correct way is do the feasts And he will give you understanding as you do that. And I'm really looking forward to this Passover. We're going to do that. We're going to do the stuff he said um, in terms of getting the leaven out of our homes, sitting down and having the Seder, and we're going to have time to talk about what we're learning, what Messiah is teaching us through this experience. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. So, uh, Colin, can you just flip it forward? Never mind. We can flip it back again. Great. Okay. Just a couple little notes from this, also. Yeah. And uh, I really the, the, the verses at the very beginning of this passage, the ones that really like grabbed my heart the most. It talks about the fire on the altar. It talks about how the fire must never go out. It must never be extinguished. Ignite the fire on the altar and keep that fire burning. That was the job of the priests. And I believe that's a picture of the new covenant. Um, one of the hallmark promises of the New Covenant is Messiah is going to submerse you in the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, and in that fire. And the, the uh, Torah framework for that is, well, that's the fire on the altar. That's the fire that consumes the Ola. The, uh, the offering that's offered, the whole thing is offered and it goes up in smoke. And that tells me something very important about the order of things. Uh, he ignites the fire of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and the New Covenant experience. He's doing that and He's going to do it more. I'm excited about experiencing more of His fire in my life, that fire of His love. Then what goes on? The Ola goes on. That's you and me. After you experience that ignition of the Holy Spirit, there may be a part of you that gets really uncomfortable and starts to transform because it's getting burnt up. The self stuff, you know? And uh, then what goes on top of that, according to this order in Leviticus 6? The uh, the wood goes on. The Hebrew there is etzim, trees, and that's the same word for the Messiah's execution stake. He was crucified on the tree. So it's telling us that when you experience the Holy Spirit in the fire, it is going to bring discomfort in your life. There's part of you that's going to burn up. You're going to be purified. You're going to you're going to go up like an offering to the Almighty on a regular basis, and uh, you're going to experience the cross. It is going to come, but that is the ultimate fulfillment in life. Because each one of us gives ourselves to something. Every one of us is an offering to somebody. And the question is whether ultimately we want to be to our Creator who is worthy and to Yeshua. Or whether we want to be to the, that other devil guy that we read about in the book of Luke. Yeah. Um, a couple instances in this, in this parsha also where the term hoko olam is used. Allah forever. Uh, chapter 6 verse 18. Chapter 6 verse 22. In chapter 7, verse 34, it's talking about the Aaronic priesthood and uh, different details regarding it. Okay, let me ask you something. Why is he saying over and over and over in these parashas, this is to be forever. This is to be through all your generations. I, he keeps repeating himself. Maybe it's for the same reason that Yeshua told his disciples, do not think this or don't even think that. Maybe it's because he wanted to reinforce our minds as believers to the very things that the enemy would try and come and deceive us about, or lie to us about. Yeshua said, don't even think that I came to do away with the law. I just had someone tell me a couple of weeks ago, well, you know, you have to understand that Yeshua fulfilled and did away with the law. When he fulfilled the law, he did away with it. And I'm thinking, no, this is the very thing Yeshua said not to think. He also said, don't think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I didn't come to bring peace but a sword. It's, it's easy for us to assume, oh, well, Messiah came to make us all really happy and, and make us all just love each other and we're all going to get along. And the, but no, actually, Yeshua said, even in the, in, in the household unit, sometimes radical devotion to Messiah, sometimes doing the stuff he said to do, it will set you apart. It may even cause division with people who are getting uncomfortable by your degree of fervency for God. And that's okay. The fire might be burning some stuff up in you, but it might be making people in your life uncomfortable too. And that's okay. Just keep burning for him. Keep shining. So maybe that's why he said this stuff about the Aaronic priesthood, because he knew, Yahweh knew, that in time, the enemy would come, and he would tell believers, theologies that would suggest things like, oh, well the Torah is only for the past. Oh, well that, you see, the ironic priesthood was only for a past dispensation. But that's all done away with now. Maybe that's why he said over and over, this is forever. This is through all the generations of the people of Israel. So, I don't know. We don't have a choir, so I can't say I'm preaching to the choir or whatever, but I I feel like maybe I'm preaching to the choir on that one. But I feel like that is part of the banner that we are called as a congregation to fly in the body of Messiah. To say, no, these things that he said forever are non-negotiable. And I take this personally when I speak against these things. Maybe. It's interesting, in Le- Leviticus 3.17, he simply says, don't eat any fat or blood, this is a law forever, everywhere that you live. And, uh, of course, the apostles really uh, reinforced that one in Acts 15, and I'm convicted about that. I mean, there'll be times when I'll go to a fast food restaurant, I realized this this last week, and I'll get a burger or whatever, I have no clue how they slaughtered that meat. I have no clue if there's blood in that meat, assuming it's all meat. <laughs> but, and uh, and you know I'm, I'm realizing you know what that's an area in my life where I'm really sloppy and I, to be honest I don't want to change I like just grabbing a burger from a fast food restaurant and I'm not suggesting you do this right this is just something I'm thinking through in my own devotion to the master and how I do his word and to finish here I want to give a little object lesson uh, it talks about in chapter 8 about how Moses equipped Aaron and his sons for the priesthood and he did different things for them And each of the things that Moses did for Aaron and his sons to inaugurate them into that priesthood, these are things that Yeshua does in our lives to inaugurate us into his priesthood. And one of them, the key one I would think is ordination. And the Hebrew doesn't actually say ordination. If you know what the Hebrew literally says, don't say it, because I'm going to give you an object lesson or two, and I'll let you try and figure it out. Um, Colin, do you want to come up here for this one? And this is my last, my last little topic here, and then we'll finish. Okay. Actually, uh, I need one more person. I need a volunteer who wants to be my volunteer. Okay, Mike. So, Colin, you come, come stand right, move over just a little bit more. Okay, just move forward just a little bit. Perfect. So, you are Aaron and his sons, okay? And, Mike, you are Moshe. Everybody say, Hi, Moshe. Hi, Moshe. Okay, so this is a picture of what what he did to ordain them. So if you want to just take that and begin to pour it into his cup. Just keep pouring. Uh Keep pouring. Now I'll say when when I'm ready. Okay, when. Are you thirsty? Yeah. Have some. Um, Okay, that's the first picture. Actually, I'm thirsty too. <laughs> actually, I'm thirsty too. <laughs> <laughs> fellowship here, eh? Gold. Okay. Yeah. So that's the fellowship. first picture. Fellowship. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Mike. <laughs> okay. okay. So, um, actually, you can sit down, Mike, and, uh, any motion. Thanks, Moishi. And Aaron, get back here. We're not done with you. Okay. So that's the first picture. Here's the second one. Kate's like, Okay, Aaron. Uh I have a mission for you. It has a job description. Yep. It's going to be a full-time activity. Yep. And uh just stay there. And I need you to build me a house. All right, Aaron? So uh in order to build the house, you're going to need some tools. Right. I see that you're empty-handed there. Yeah. You can't do work with empty hands, buddy. Right. Not on a construction site. Yeah. And uh get your hands out of your pockets. Got it. You don't put your hands in your pockets on a construction site. Right. I worked construction. That's what one of my foremen would tell me when I was first on the job. Get your hands out of your pockets. <laughs> so anyway, um, here's your tool belt. Yep. Put that on. Right. I'll keep that for a sec. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You didn't have someone else. <laughs> yeah, right, eh? Okay. So you're going to be right. doing, doing a lot of framing. Yep. Pounding nails. There's your hammer, buddy got you a nice Makita skill set. Yep. And um, you'll be doing a lot of cutting, so you can take that too. Right. And you're going to to keep, the, keep the hammer in your, other po- in your other hand there for a yep. second. Okay, now this is the picture of ordination. What Mike did for Colin and what I'm doing for Colin. The Hebrew word for ordination literally means to fill. It means to fill, full. And it, it literally, uh, in the next chapters, it's going to talk about it as filling his hands. When Moses ordained Aaron and his sons, what he literally did is he filled their hands. So as you can see, I, I've filled Colin's hands. I've equipped him with the tools he needs to get the job done. In this case, building a house or whatever. And uh, that's what Moses did for Aaron. That's what Yeshua does for us. So the greatest thing that he can do for you, to equip you to be a priest for Messiah, and to represent him to the world around you, is to fill you with the Holy Spirit. That's the filling. And also as we fill ourselves with his word, as we study his word and we act it out, that's filling us. That's filling our hands with the tools we need. And the mitzvot also. You could see that each one of these are like one of the commandments. Each one of those are like one of the mitzvot that we need to put in our tool belts, our spiritual tool belts, to, to get the job done, to accomplish our mission. So hopefully that helps you kind of give you a, a, a bigger understanding of that, uh, that element of ordination. So each of you ha- either has been ordained or you're being ordained or you're going to be ordained mm-hmm. by, by Messiah in that way. Thanks, Colin. Thank you. I mean, thanks, Aaron. Oh, no problem. But I didn't build any houses. It's your Oh, All right. Good. You don't have to today. I'll see you on the site tomorrow morning, though. Good. Shalom, I'm Izzy Avraham, and thank you for joining me for this talk. I delivered these messages live during the years I was leading a congregation. They're now hosted by my Hebrew school. Holy Language Institute at holylanguage.com. If you're interested in the talks I've done since then, or if you'd just like to say thank you for these teachings, become a member at holylanguage.com.